0: You're about to get smarter in just a few minutes with Curiosity Daily from Curiosity.com. I'm Cody Goff.
1: And I'm Ashley Hamer. Today, you'll learn about why futurists don't need to know the future with writer, producer, and flash-forward podcast host, Rose Evelyn. Then, you'll learn about the oldest examples of money ever discovered.
0: Let's satisfy some curiosity.
1: What if you could take a peek into the future to know what decisions you should make in the present? That's basically the job of a futurist. They explore what might happen in the future and the things we can do today to make the future better. And our guest today is going to answer our burning questions about futurists and how they do what they do. Rose Eveleth is a writer, producer, and the creator of Flash Forward Presents, a podcast network that demystifies the future, featuring hit shows like Flash Forward and advice for and from the future. In our conversation, I asked her a question I've always wondered about. Have a listen. If you can't know the future, how can you be a futurist?
2: (laughs) Yes. Yes. This is a great question. The future, it turns out, has not happened yet. And that is both the cool and terrifying thing about it, right? Like that it's this really amazing thing to think about. But also, right, like, you know, one thing that futurists often hate is the word predictions, because they're often asked to make predictions when really what a lot of us think about is options, possibilities, things that could happen, you know, ways we could go. And there are a lot of ways in which things can go sideways or things can happen that you weren't expecting. At the same time, humans are weirdly predictable, right? We do, We tend to fall into patterns. We tend to make choices based on a couple of things. And there are ways to sort of think about, okay, well, we know that in the past when something like this has happened, here's what we've done in, in response. You know, unfortunately we're seeing a, a really good example of this right now with the pandemic, right? You can see incredible parallels between the 1918 pandemic And today, in terms of mask wearing and the conversations around, like, should you or shouldn't you wear a mask? And you might think that over the course of 100 years, we would have gotten better at some of these things. And in fact, we have not. You know, our science has gotten a lot better. We understand these diseases better. But the sort of cultural thing is actually the thing that's almost a little bit easier to, like, say, like, well, humans don't like to be told what to do people don't like to be told what to do, right? And like, we know that, right? And so I think there there are a lot of tools and techniques that futurists and futurologists and people like me use. And a lot of it is history, looking at what's happened in the past. A lot of it is thinking about, you know, who who has a stake in this, who has power, and what do they want? You know, I do a lot of thinking about what could the future be if we really got to like, to make a better one, right? If we really could make it really good and exciting. And there are tools for all of those things. And a lot of it is also... You know, much like you two interviewing a lot of people, talking to a lot of scientists, talking to a lot of people who think about this and think about what's going on because they know what's coming better than, you know, I do or really anyone else does in their own field. So there's a lot of tools, right, to predict or, you know, try to think about the future. But it's true. I mean, there is a joke. That people make about futurism, which is that it's the best job because you can't be right because like no one knows what's going to happen. right? Like there's no like you can't really get mad at someone for not predicting the future because it's impossible. <laughs> so it is kind of a night. You have a, some job security there. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So what what
1: elements do you think futurists miss when they're talking about the new and shiny future?
2: I mean, I, some of it is thinking about it as new and shiny. Right. And history is a big thing that a lot of people who work in in futurism miss you know, particularly a certain brand of technologist, the sort of prototypical Silicon Valley guy. Right. I mean, Anthony Lewandowski is, is literally quoted in The New Yorker as saying, like, I don't even know why we learn history. Like, I guess it's kind of interesting, but like, who cares? It has nothing to do with the future. And all, all, everyone who works on this is like, oh, my God. <laughs> you know, um, but I do think that that is a big piece of it. I think that like Diversity writ large is a huge problem in the futurism space, in futurology, in all of these worlds. You have a really similar set of people imagining the future, a really sort of like cis, white, male, Western version of what's going to happen. But the thing that I think is worth noting, and again, sounds obvious, which is that the future impacts everybody and we're all going to be there. And so the people who are kind of like impacted most by a lot of these technologies and policies often aren't actually included in the conversations around them. And that's a lot of what I try to do is sort of bring those voices in. So an example of that is like CRISPR technology, right? This idea that we could edit ourselves in these really interesting ways. And there's some really cool stuff there, but there's also some really dark stuff there. And a lot of the people who aren't included in that conversation will be the first impacted, which is disabled people, right? Who like are going to be edited out of existence in some ways. And that is a very weird and hard and scary thing to see a bunch of fancy tech people be excited about the fact that they're going to edit you out of existence, right? That's not a great feeling. And so you know, on my show, Flash Forward, I try to invite those folks on to talk about this stuff. So if we do something about prosthetics, you know, we talk to someone who uses prosthetics. If we do something about CRISPR, we talk to disabled folks like, you know, we did an episode about UBI and we talked to folks who were doing those projects in, you know, the southern United States, largely for black single moms. Right. Who are already doing these projects who aren't sort of the Silicon Valley guys doing these projects. So just trying to kind of like open up that box of like who gets to talk about the future A little wider, I think, is is a big thing that futurists miss. And in not talking to those people, they miss big trends, right? You know, they miss large cultural trends around young people, around TikTok, around like all these things that we see now, GameStop stonks, right? Like that is something that a lot of futurists sort of missed because they don't take some of those communities very seriously or they're not sort of like listening in some ways, which is not to say that the men who did this on Reddit are like diverse in any real meaningful way, but There is sort of an element of like, oh, we only listen to these particular academics and we only listen to these particular inventors. And we're kind of in this little bubble and we're all in a bubble of some sort. But if you can kind of expand that, then you'll you'll do better, I think, in the world of futurism.
1: P.S. Rose mentioned UBI and that stands for universal basic income or the idea of regularly giving everyone in a population a certain amount of money. No questions asked. Anyway, that was Rose Eveleth, a writer, producer, and the creator of Flash Forward Presents, a podcast network that demystifies the future, featuring hit shows like Flash Forward and advice for and from the future. Rose will be back tomorrow to talk about why so many breakthroughs in technology never seem to go anywhere.
0: If you found ancient money, how would you know it was ancient money? You probably couldn't read the inscriptions. You could check to see if it was made of precious metal, but that wouldn't necessarily make it money. Well, a pair of Dutch archaeologists just faced that quandary, and their ingenious solution led them to conclude that they had the oldest examples of money ever discovered. Over the decades, archaeologists have dug up a lot of very old, very oxidized pieces of bronze. We're talking tiny axe blades, rings, and pieces they call ribs, but that really look like metal green beans. These things have been found all over Europe, though the rings and beans are more plentiful in southern Europe, and the axe blades are more plentiful in northern Europe. But there's a centralized location around the Czech Republic where all three tend to converge. So how can this ragtag collection of bronze objects belong to the same system of money, Well, it comes down to weight. One key aspect of currency is that any one piece of it is interchangeable with another piece of the same value. When money is made of a precious metal, like bronze, its value is the amount of material itself. And you can measure that by weight. That's why the researchers behind this project decided to weigh 5,000 pieces of this bronze age bling. And it wasn't as simple as you'd think. After all, people living 5,000 years ago didn't have great ways to measure things. So to get into their heads, the researchers used insights from psychophysics. That's a subfield of cognitive psychology that compares the physical properties of things with the way humans perceive them. In this case, they needed to figure out how much people in the Bronze Age thought those pieces weighed. And researchers in psychophysics have found that people usually think two objects weigh the same if they fall within about a 10% range. The idea is that if Bronze Age people were making a lot of objects that they thought were equivalent, then those objects were probably used as currency. And what they found lined up with that expectation. Many of the bronze objects found across Europe would have seemed equivalent to Bronze Age people. More than 70% of the bronze rings fell into that 10% range, and even more of the green beans did. The axe blades didn't quite measure up, but their weight similarity was still slightly higher than chance. So, 5,000 years. That is some old money. I wonder if future archaeologists will be able to find our cryptocurrency. They won't, Cody. No, they really won't. People today can barely find their cryptocurrency.
1: (laughs) That is true. (laughs) All right, let's recap the main things we learned today, starting with the fact that one way that futurists are able to talk about the future is that humans are predictable in a lot of ways, and we can see that pretty clearly by looking at the past. Looking forward can help us make smarter decisions that'll help us create a better future for everyone.
0: Yes, but unfortunately, sometimes futurists miss things because they don't look closely enough at history. And there are also blind spots in futurism because a lot of people come from the same background and they don't always listen to the people that their projects are actually affecting. So everyone could benefit in the long run by listening to more diverse points of view. We just did this yesterday. We talked about a study with Fight or Flight and Tend and Befriend. All the previous research on the fight or flight response, like 90% of it had been done on men. What? That's... That's missing the point. Yeah. And Anissa Ramirez, our material scientist, science communicator friend, last week also talked about some blind spots with science. So pretty important stuff.
1: Yeah. It is a bad idea to assume that you can see every perspective. It's good to have a lot of perspectives in the room with you to help out.
0: I barely know my own point of view on things half the time. Let alone speaking for other people and imagining that I know what it's like for other people.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's actually a great point is that we don't know. I mean, we don't know the lens we're seeing the world through, right? It's invisible to us. So I mean, it's hard to know what things everyone experiences and what things are different between people. Yeah. And we also learned that researchers found the oldest examples of money ever discovered with some help from psychophysics, which seems like the coolest field in the world. Researchers in that field had found that people usually think things weigh the same if they're within about 10% of each other. So they weighed 5,000 pieces of bronze from the Bronze Age, and most of them fell into that category. Hence, it's probably currency.
0: And by looking back at this into the past, Ashley just like with futurists, I got a glimpse into my future.
1: How did you do that?
0: Because I was working on this script and I was like, I should do an online search for money songs to make some joke about a song that talks about money. And I, so I searched for money song. All of the top results are children's songs, all of them. Like there's no adult song that shows up on the front page of Google. If you type in money song, at least not. I mean, I could
1: probably I could probably name quite a few money songs that are for adults, but I don't think I'd be able to say them on the podcast.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I know like the Pink Floyd song. What's that called? Money. Is it just called money? Shane McMahon comes out to Here Comes the Money. We all know that. WWE. All of us know that, especially on this podcast. But my point is (laughs) by looking because of this article about the past, I saw my future of kids songs. Like I have so many kids songs in my near future. We've already got the Raffi record.
1: I was wondering, like, do you have do you have kids songs now? I I, like you would already start. Oh,
0: yeah. No, we got some Sesame Street. I just can't wait. Every parent can relate. I'm sure all of my young dad friends, they know they know every kid song, like every theme song. It's going to be a good time.
1: I had a past life as a science and music blogger, and I have a backlog of albums by like regular grown-up bands that are about science for kids. So I'll send those your way.
0: (laughs) Can't wait. Let's just start composing our own musical numbers and performing them on the show. I'm sure people would love that.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, we already sang the alphabet song. We got so many. Everyone was just like, amazing. Do it again. Nobody was like that. Nobody. <laughs> <But>.
0: <laughs> Today's stories were written by Ashley Hamer and Grant Curran and edited by Ashley Hamer, who's the managing editor for Curiosity Daily.
1: Curiosity Daily is produced and edited by Cody Goff.
0: Have a happy St. Patrick's Day and join us again tomorrow on the award-winning Curiosity Daily Do to learn something new in just a few minutes.
1: And until then,
2: stay curious.